is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunbill, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to the third episode of our 2018 summer mini-series, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of Victorian adaptations of medieval culture with a chat about William Morris's Kelmscott Chaucer and the Kelmscott Press more broadly. And joining us today to help us talk about the Kelmscott Press and its iconic edition of Chaucer's work is Ben Maggs of Maggs Bros, the booksellers in London. Hi everyone, I just need to insert a small disclaimer into the episode here to tell you that we had some technical difficulties, particularly with Ben's audio. I've cleaned it up as best I can in editing, but I'm by no means a professional at sound editing, so at times it might sound a little bit odd. Hopefully you won't notice anything, but on the off chance you do, I wanted to make you aware of this issue. So now we are going to return to the original recording, and I will allow Ben to introduce himself. I'm an Ashcroft bookseller. We are a family business. We began in 1853, just over with Morris. In fact, we're very lucky to have two letters from William Morris in our family archive. The first letter, William Morris says, I ordered books last week and they haven't arrived. Hurry up. The second letter, William Morris says, I've received all three books. One of them I already have and the other two I don't like. I'm returning them. So... For us, it's for me, it's a great privilege to have a sense of having a certain part in this history, a certain very small part. But also, it's interesting, William Morris didn't really like booksellers. So I suspect his letters to us were probably the way he spoke to most tradespeople. A, a certain condescension and um, pity. That was fascinating. That's so cool that you have letters from him. And it does sound very much like his MO, that he was, as we'll maybe discuss more in this episode, but certainly in a future episode if we cover his life at more depth, that he was later in life um, committed to socialism, but also had some very elitist ideas that were in conflict with that. So while he conceivably should have maybe been more uh, sympathetic with people in business and the the working classes and, and the merchant classes, he sometimes was at odds with them in interesting ways. He is two men. He is always contradicting himself. And we will go on to speak about it later, but the Chaucer is a wonderful example where he fetishizes the medieval and, and the handcraft, but at the same time is very happy to use cameras, uh, to use electrotypes. He uses technology when it suits him, and he justifies it, but his justification is always a little bit weak. Yeah, 
It's so fascinating. Um, but before we get into this, maybe we should give a brief timeline of both William Morris's life and the sort of uh, life cycle of the Kelmscott Press. Yes, I think we're doing that thing where we know a lot about, or a decent amount about William Morris. So maybe we should tell our listeners. Yes. William Morris was born March 24, 1834. Then in 1853, he attends Exeter College. And what's important while he's at Exeter College, he meets some people who are a very large influence on his life. In 1856, he graduates, or takes his degree, as they would have said, and gets a job uh, doing... I've written architectural stuff because that's how much knowledge I have of, of what exactly he was doing. Yes, I forget the name of the practice he worked for, but it was quite a tradition, well, later on, jumping forward, a lot of printers were architects originally. Over time, it was too strict for him. In the late 1850s, he gets involved with the Pre-Brufflite brothers, and as he starts painting, this is a section that's really interesting to me, especially with uh, Rossetti and Burne Jones. Yes. There's a very, it's, it's an interesting thing, and, and there's a lot to be said for the, the sexual politics of it. Lazzetti was in love with and married a woman called Lizzie Siddle, and Morris in 1853, I think? Um, no, 1850, 1858, it was very quick, met Jane Burden. Uh, she was modelling for him, and he was painting, and Basel painting by Morris survives, and it's a derivative of Burne Jones. But Jane Burton is a, an interesting, interesting lady, but she's one who is very much the stereotypical Cleopatra-like beauty, to the extent that people wondered whether she <laughs> did the, were the models based on her or was she based on the models almost? It's, which way round does it come? And she never really loved Morris um, in Fiona McCarthy's book. Yeah, Jane Jane never never completely loved Morris. And Morris probably didn't love her. I think he loved her vision, her image. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that period where Rossetti moves into the house with Jane and the children and William goes off to, is it Iceland? Exactly so. Um, we think that by 1870, Morris probably knew, never made clear whether it's a sexual relationship or not, and it's not important. Victorians are always incredibly coy, as you can imagine. And then, after Lizetti dies, jumping forwards again, but it, it happens all over again, and, and Jane has a, another affair with Wilfred Scarn Blunt, who um, made a career, more or less, of having an affair with all of the eligible women in the English artistic circle. That's quite a complicated group. I summed this all up uh, to sort of, um, I'm doing the dad joke today, and I've just uh, summed it up by saying that the marriage is to be a burden to both. I think that both both you and uh, Ben, Eleanor, have really drawn out why that 
Um, but, but in that way of contradictions, it's important to say that they, whilst they may not have been in love exactly in the modern sense, Morris did look after her. So it's just a slightly different way of looking at things, I suppose. Yeah, there is a very real sense of partnership, even if it doesn't match our understanding. Yes, it was almost... I think you have to bear in, in mind the relationship between Morris and Burne Jones as well. It was uh, an incredibly close male partnership with no Im- no intimations at all of, of, of homosexuality. And in a way, his relationship with Jane was, was perhaps, if, if a slightly less passionate partnership and inspiration. Whether Morris ever fully loved anybody is an interesting question. Yeah, that is a big, big question. One I don't think we'll have the time or capacity to answer, but something certainly worth thinking about. Um. Um, no, <laughs> uh, Victorian sexual politics are incredibly complicated, yes. so let's not go down that path. <laughs> we'll, we'll just move on a little. Um, so in 1879, Morris and Jane uh, moved to Kelmscott House, so that name should be ringing some bells. It's... Yes, and it's always it's slightly. Um, they they then had later her kind of got manor, and, and it gets confusing as with many of these things. Um, Morris had many houses, and I think that he is now the only person who has three house museums in Britain. Wow. Yes, I've been to the birthplace house because my best friend lives in Walthamstow, so I've been there a few times, but I haven't had the chance to go to Kelmscott or the Red House. Definitely on the bucket list. So, speaking of Red, that's a very weird segue. In 1884, he becomes a socialist. In 1887, on November 13th, he marched alongside George Bernard Shaw during Bloody Sunday. And he was, at one point, arrested for speaking on the street corner and obstructing the path was an incredibly vigorous socialist and it goes in phases and Peterson who wrote the great first great biography of Morris in the 1950s describes the first phase as being an escapist phase more or less where he tries to create a world by harking back and then the second phase very much is trying to modify the real world and his socialism is is a great part of that and it was quite a quite a strong form of socialism he he encouraged people not to vote uh, he believed that the workers had to in a very much a marxist struggle had to unite i'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that later and also about this so in 1888 he goes to see a lecture by emery walker which inspires him to start a press Walker is an important figure in fine press printing and it says something about the, the contradictions of Morris in that he was a middle, upper middle class gentleman amateur and it's his name that's most commonly popularly remembered and Emery Walker was the complete opposite. He was a uh, working class. He began as an apprentice in a print shop i think it was uh involved in sort of photo engraving and and doing he was a technician he had studied and he had learned he used the new technology of photography to 
reproduce and enlarge early typefaces from incunables. And at this point, it's worth explaining the word incunables, which literally means from the cradle. And these are books printed before 1500. Printing begins in uh, 1450 and... There's a great saying, and I can't remember who it is, but that the best book ever printed was the first, and that every book since has gotten worse. And Walker, very much inspired by this, studied early books and the, the process of creating it. And he gave these lectures with magic lantern slides where he would have individual letters projected in Hammersmith. And Cobden Sanderson, who you'll come on to later, was there. And I think also the founder of the Ashendine Press was, was there, or certainly one of the later. Uh, so Walker is central. Yes, um, and he uh, he is part of another revival. So we're talking sort of about the, the Kelmscott Press in terms of the late century Gothic revival, but a huge part of this is actually the revival of typefaces. Up until this point, if I'm remembering my book history correctly, um, the... The sort of the, the faces that they would use to do historical printing or to print these quote medieval texts were wildly inaccurate. Um, but Emery Walker and other late century typographical innovators were returning to um, early or original Jensen types. So I think that's true of both this one, uh, of both Kelmscott and Dove's Press. No, no, that's exactly it attitude of most of the fine printers of the arts and crafts survival was most well explained in Morris's reaction to the typeface of Bodoni. And Bodoni typeface is most known now for being the Nirvana um, cover face on what's the album, the famous album with like Teen Spirit. Um, Come as you are. Come as you are. That's it, yeah, of the band name. Incredibly skinny. Looks like they'll snap. And often they did in the press. And Morris absolutely hated it. He he called it flaccid. And um, he really liked type that was squat and solid and dependable. In a way, it's type that felt like an English oak. He would have liked that similarly. And yeah, that explains it quite well. Um, well, just to say that Morris kicks it off. Really, Walker kicks it off by showing it to Morris. And it then goes on to, to, to start a revival the best of which are the Dove's Press and the Ashendine Press. And there's a nice then segue into the end of it. I mean, it's a very quick, very short revival. Um, the Essex House Press by Ashby, um, the son of Henry Spencer Ashby, C.R. Ashby. And he buys Morris's even. So just 20 years or so after this whole thing begins, he gives it up and says that industrial produced examples have, have already taken it. It's it's over. Uh, so it's a revival that really only lasts in its pure form for about 20 years. Yeah, that's a good point. I have so many um, cheap editions of 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century books. Very cheap. That's so cheap that the paper is now... Um, entirely brown because of the high wood content, but they're certainly trying to 
present themselves in the style of Morris. So uh, it went from being a very uh, fine and high uh, and elite form to um, commercial very, very quickly. Yes, uh, and that's the, the great power of print. But it is it's not a downfall. He was a socialist and he believed in the evolution of the working classes. But at the same time, he believed in luxury. He believed in things which were made of the best materials and to the highest standards. And I don't think he was ever able to quite to square those two things. And the closest he came, and I, it's a realization I had when I first studied him and didn't didn't see how I could how I could understand the two things. But part of it is that his workers were given the privilege of creating these objects. And the act of creation was incredibly important to, to pre-print to monks writing, medieval monks uh, writing manuscripts as an act of devotion. And the final work is important. It's good that it's beautiful and it's good that a patron pays you for it. But actually the most important thing is that you have spent time and devoted time to the creation of this object. And so at least from Morris's point of view, he could think that the workers who could never afford to buy be the creators of them. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that actually makes a lot more sense or it, it helps to ease the contradiction a little bit, I think. And, um, so the same dies in uh, 1896, and he, um, and you get a few books. I've seen one in Blackburn presented after his death by his uh, uh, by his daughter, and it's quite touching. They think they must have been sent out as a sort of to the best collectors. Um, so you get these these books inscribed by May in memory of of William, uh, which is it's quite touching. Um, so I'm just going to quickly fit round out our timeline. Um... So in 1890, Morris begins designing fonts collaboratively. Um, I think he consults with Emery Walker quite a bit. Um, he also begins sourcing the sorts of paper that he'd like to use and publicizing. Um, by 1891, the first book, The Story of the Glittering Plain, was ready and available. The Kelmscott Chaucer, which we're focusing on in this episode, comes out in 1896, and two years later, in 1898, the Kelmscott Press closes. And if, if I'm remembering right, it's um, just like months after the Kelmscott is finished that he actually dies, and there's been speculation that is partly overwork. I think that it, it ties into the folk hero image of Morris as being a man at the printing press, pulling the handle, uh, setting the type, inking the rollers, but he didn't really do that. He didn't print his own books. Yeah, it does sound very much like the folk hero explanation. It's a nice story. Whether it's true or not is another question, which, which maybe doesn't even matter. Initially, he did. At the very beginning, he did. Um... His very first book, or what would have been his very first book, was The Earthly Paradise, um, one of his early poems, poem known as The Poet, than as anything else. Uh, retrospectively, 
the opinion of Victorian poetry has rather rather declined, um, and few people now read even Tennyson, who was absolutely at the top top of Victorian poetry. And so the first book book of Morris's poetry that he wanted to in the eighteen fifties he with Burne Jones he wanted to create a medieval book but he didn't know how. At that point, he was already collecting books, but he had no experience. Burne Jones hundred or more drawings to illustrate this book, and they they sent one of the drawings to a conventional trade engraver, the same person who did Punch, that great satirical Victorian cartoon, and they got the proof back. And Morris hated it because it had turned Burne Jones's Gothic revival ethereal, beautiful image into something that Morris called flaccid and Victorian. So Morris immediately began cutting the blocks himself because he realised that his vision could only be done by his own hand. Certainly at the beginning, he was very hands-on. Yeah, and I've just added a piece that he wrote much later towards the end of his life, but his note by note by William Morris and his aims in finding the Kemscott Press into the show notes. We won't read them all because they're very long, but I think this certainly gives some good insight into his thinking. And at points, it's certainly a little strange. The bit that's always struck me is, well, should not dazzle the eye or trouble the intellect of the reader by eccentricity Yes. If anyone's ever tried to lead the Kelmscott Chaucer, you'd struggle to com- to combine those um, that sentiment and the finished product, because it certainly dazzles the eye. Um, it's probably its greatest characteristic. You you open it at that opening gathering page. Oh, it's stunning! But story. My, my wife is in the trade, and the book trade dad is, of course, the boss. And I think one of the first times he met could be whether you could lead the Kelmscott Chaucer in bed. And my wife Adamly said, "Yes, I could definitely read it in bed. Just give me one, and I'll do it." And <laughs> my dad um, said, "Sorry, we're all out of Kelmscott choices, um, <laughs> but why not just a nice octavo? It's much much simpler." The density of any given Kelmscott page um, is, yes, mind-boggling. He fits so much in there, and in fact, I think most of the um, book historians or or people in the book trade at all who I've run into who've talked about this with me have said it's really, it's not meant to read. That's not what it's for as a book. There's a nice lesson that I learned from one of my tutors. I should say I did a degree in book history. Um, I should have mentioned that at the beginning, but that was my intro to all of this. And one of my tutors explained how, especially medieval books, they were a memory aid. They were not actually meant to be read. Um, it's an aid to memory. And the, the thing is, you, you really need to already know how it reads. And then it's the most beautiful way of doing it. It's, it's sort of like seeing a film for the fifth time or the tenth time you already know exactly what happens, but you can enjoy the deep digest the text. It's a great medieval sense of eating books, digesting books, ruminating on books. And that's exactly what the Kelmscott Chaucer is supposed to be. You, It's an aid to digestion. That's lovely. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. 
And I think that Morris would ex- appreciate that description. Yeah, it kind of harks back to the oral culture of the medieval time, I guess, with this aid to memory. And it's more about adding a new dimension to the reading through the imagery. That's exactly it. And one of the things, I, and I can't credit it to myself, it's from PhD paper. You mentioned PhD. And sometimes people do read and talks about Morris's great, or one of his great use from nowhere. And this is the other great contradiction of Morris is that he wrote fantastical medieval fiction and harked back to that. But at the same time, he wrote some of the first, well, not the first, but the first modern utopian fiction uh, and science fiction soft science fiction but still a form of science fiction but in News from Nowhere the plot is wonderfully hackneyed a man in 1890 falls asleep and wakes up in the middle and is surrounded by a utopian world all are happy and there's no technology and there's no books because books have been entirely replaced by oral culture And so whilst Morris clearly loved books, they were a means to something. And the ultimate goal was to remove the need for the book. And so really Morris wanted an oral culture. And so it's a very great paradox that the man who created some of the most beautiful books didn't really at the route books. Yeah, that's fascinating. And we were talking earlier about how Morris has the same approach to technology as a lot of people today of being a sort of, I was going to use the word Luddite, but I feel like that's quite politically charged, but being very for making all use out of it as possible, but also against having this very idealistic pastoral view of the past before technology. Yes, I think that the thing to him was not to be controlled by industry or to be controlled by technology. And so were Morris alive now, I think he would be very much worried by the necessity of technology. It was, I think for Morris, part of how he could justify it was when it just made things easier, but you could do them always before. You could still do them the hard way if you had to, but why make it more difficult if, you don't, if it's not necessary? But I think that now the technology has would terrify how he felt about mass production in the 1890s as well. Um, There was a sense of losing control of the world. Do you think that that's what appealed to him about the medieval period or hmm, it seems like the medieval period itself had a a kind of a large presence in the the fine art movements uh, throughout the century? but what do you think, what was it about the medieval period that so drew Morris and his ilk? If you, if you feel like you could speak to that, not to put you on the spot. I think a part of it is, well, it's, it's all entirely idealism. But it's an idealism of a freedom of spirit. And I think that he believed factories and mass production and jobs limited one's freedom or entirely circumscribed one's freedom and he had this medieval vision where 
he entirely blinded himself feudal system to the reality that most people in the serfs who if they were lucky grew enough food to eat themselves uh and he dwelled on the the upper classes the the knights and the maidens but he believed that that they were free to pursue romantic ideals to be spiritual beings and unencumbered by technology and definitely gives a insight into him and, mm. and i think in that context then the his relationship with jane which was entirely not idealistic he met a woman who looked like everything he wanted her to look like a medieval damsel the only painting that survives is of her as um oh god what's her name uh no, it it was thought to be Guinevere, oh, but it's actually not. It's um, oh. is a guard is anyway. Um, Isolt. Isolt. That's it. Um, but the reality of his marriage was entirely prosaic, and it was entirely unloving in a in a romantic sense. And in a way, I think there's something very sad about Morris. There's a sad sense often of he could see what he wanted but could never quite get there. And one feels simple you do with, with most dreamers. He An interesting comparison is with another man who followed him, Thomas Cobden Sanderson, who founded the Doves Press, which was one of the other great presses that followed the Kelmscott Press. And Cobden Sanderson was also at the lecture with Emery Walker. But Cobden Sanderson was entirely forward-thinking, and he believed in the power of science and the power of technology to us. There's a wonderful moment where he... It's another quote I should find and, uh, and, and say when I have it, but he directly references Morris is looking back to the past and he says, no, we shouldn't look back to the past for models. We should look to create new models free from those traditions and empowered by science to, to, to look forwards. And his great role model was, was Humboldt, the, the, the great explorer and difference between the two of them. In a way they were coming around to the same dream but attempting to do it in completely opposite ways. And their books reflect those different approaches. The books of the Doves Press are incredibly clean and sparse. There is no ornament at all. The typeface is much less flat and squat than the Kelmscott types. And really, the Doves had more of an influence going forwards. It's more modern. And in a way, it looks like something from the future, whereas the Kelmscott Press very much looks like something from the distant past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to see if I can find a good image of the opening spread of the Dove's Press Bible, which I think is, is just a really stunning 
example of what you're talking about, Ben. It really takes the breath away. In the same way, or it feels similar to opening the, water, to opening the Chaucer. The, the, the emotion is similar. And it's one of the fascinating things about books that two entirely opposite books can, in a way, be so similar. Yes, yeah. I mean, they are so aesthetically different, but just um, having seen them in person, um, I, it, it does, it literally takes your breath away. We were lucky enough to have a complete set of the Doves Press. And on a shelf, it's absolutely incredible. Um, apart from the Bible, they are all small quartos, all identical in size, and it's incredibly modern. It feels like a piece of modern architecture. I was in Barcelona on the weekend, and a friend of mine who's an architect, Mies van der Rohe's Pavilion, which modernist buildings. And you, you see it, and you think, well, this is very modern, but out of the context, you think, well, it's just sort of like everything else now. But then you see the photograph of it being opened, and there's men in top hats and three-piece suits inside this building that is like something from a James Bond film. And the Doves Press was like that as well, I think, in context. You think, wow, that's incredibly forward-thinking. Yeah, I was, I was trying to formulate this in my brain, but I think Cam Scott is almost like there's the there's the narrative function, which is, as you said earlier, Ben, more of a memory aid, and you already know the words, so you don't need to read them. And then a pure visual function. I'm just thinking of a there's a room upstairs in the birthplace of William Morris, which has the golden font on the walls, kind of out of order. And that's one of those things. It's in the same room as the Kelmscott Chaucer. But something about that wall really struck me when I saw it. It's, I have to admit to being a, quite a big fan of the golden type. Yeah, it's... Maybe a nice way to put it is that Kelmscott books are incredibly immersive. It, they're almost virtual reality in the sense that you're not only reading the text, but that the creation of the book reflects and embodies the content of the book and in that way I think that they were a great innovation because they tried to synthesize the experience of reading the the content of the reading something which we now find ourselves desiring again having been through a period of reading on screens and Kindles and this, that, and the other, that have no existence as a as an art object, which are entirely disassociated from the text. Having something like a mm. like the Kelmscott Chaucer in front of you, you're in that place, surrounded by the the sense and the spirit of the the book, and and I think that's partly why the Kelmscott Press is exceptional in printing so much of Morris's own work. He, he was the most published author by the press. And I think it's because the press really existed to, to create a manifestation of his writing and they're intrinsically linked to each other. 
That's a good point. I just learned yesterday um, about exactly how um, immersive William Morris was, I guess, with his, um, or how how much he wanted to be physically immersed in not only the literature, but the art. So um, he wrote a poem about his bed and had it embroidered on his bed. Um, I'll share a picture in the show notes, but um, so that's just the level to which he lived his life in immersion of the arts and literature. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see it. I think um, it's yeah, quite striking, actually. <laughs> I would quite like to have been Willie Morris or to have, to have seen it. It's, it's in the context. And that's partly why we're lucky that so many of his houses survive as well, um, because we, we are afforded the opportunity to up to a point step into Morris's life. Mm. And I think that trying to understand one bit of Morris is very difficult um, because there is a, everything was connected to each other. Yes, yeah. We're about out of time. Is there anything that we've missed or anything we should add? No, I, I think that we, I think we've, We've covered everything. Um, and so I, I, in researching, studying for this, I came across a radio piece from the BBC a few years ago talking about Islamic art and Willie Morris and interviewing people, descendants of immigrants in Walthamstow, where one of Morris's houses is, and talking to Islamic artists and inspired by Morris's work, which was itself inspired by Islamic material. And... And so I think that Morris, it's very much the point of it being backwards and forwards. It doesn't just appeal to the medieval. It can also be taken on and can be a template for the future and can continue to inspire different people who aren't white, upper middle class men. And so although Morris was that, it shouldn't be held against him. Um, and it's a, a variety of, of, of different people. That's well put. I think that's such a great note to end this episode on. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us today, Ben. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks again for agreeing to talk to us. Some really fascinating things brought up here. I feel like I have to abandon my thesis for a few days and look into Morris for a bit. (laughs) There's always a temptation. Okay, thanks for listening. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, Why are you
All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.